Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Luke Stutters. Hello. Darren Bramer. Hello. Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. John Epperson. Hello. Valentino Stoll. Hey there. I don't know why my voice keeps cracking, but that's okay. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And this week, we have a special guest. It is Jeremy Evans. He's back. We're going to be talking about his book, Polished Ruby Programming. Uh, Jeremy, do you want to just remind folks who you are? And then we'll kind of intro the book and get, get rolling. Oh, okay. So, yeah, my name is Jeremy Evans. I started using Ruby in 2004. I maintain quite a few Ruby libraries, including a database library named SQL, web toolkit named Rhoda, and an authentication framework named Rhodop. In 2019, I became a Ruby committer. I was the main implementer of the separation of positional and keyword arguments in Ruby 3. Other than that, I've mostly been working on fixing bugs in Ruby. So when I started becoming a committer, Ruby had about 1,400 open bugs in the bug tracker, and now it only has about 300. So it's gotten much better in the last couple of years. Oh, cool. When I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev Heroes aren't just people who devs admire, they're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. So, yeah, we talked about Rota last time, but I think what we had on the docket was to talk about the book, but I don't think all of us had gotten it yet. So I, I'm a little curious, and I'm a sucker for stories. <laughs> so tell us the once upon a time Jeremy decided to write a book. <laughs> so, yeah, that's actually not how it went, because I'm a lazy guy. So I was originally contacted by PAC in October of last year. And they were looking to publish a book that was tentatively titled Clean Code in Ruby. So I think they have one that's called Clean Code in Python. And they asked me if I was willing to author it. So I'd, I'd never authored a book before. And uh, I did a little bit of research. And it sounded like a lot of work, like hundreds of hours of work for very little money. So I'm a lazy guy. My gut instinct was to say, no, I don't want to do, I don't want to do that. But I talked to some people I trusted, like my wife, like my mom. They really encouraged me to write the book, which is easy for them because they weren't doing any of the work. Uh, I was in the middle of a pandemic and I had a lot more free time than I usually do. So I decided to say yes. It took a couple months for contract negotiations. Then I had from December to June to write the book. So uh, the writing process was like really intense. I did a lot of the initial chapter writing uh, well before the deadlines I was given, which turned out to be a wise decision because near the end of the publishing phase is when all the editing, almost all the editing happened in like May and June. At that point, the book was pretty much mostly written and it was just editing that I had to do because I can't imagine like writing the end of the book and having to do all the editing because the editing was, was a lot of work every day for to, to handle the editing. Mm -hmm. So Pact in general, I had a good time writing for them. The writing was for Pact was simple, straightforward. I had a good time working with all the editors. They have a very specific style they want you to use. And it's the style is not exactly a style I would write with if my choice was up to me. So it, take, it took some time to adjust to the style that they want you to write in. I will say, though, the rewrites during editing were fairly minimal. I don't think I ever wrote rewrote anything longer than a paragraph. So I did end up deleting whole sections of the book 
I had a couple of technical reviewers. Uh, some of the times they say, hey, you know, I don't think this this section adds as much value. Um, so I would generally just delete the section as opposed to trying to fix it. I think in hindsight, I probably should have deleted more. The book ended up being significantly longer than, than was originally uh, expected. So I think the only part of the review process I didn't like was, you know, the fairly end of the copy editing phase, they do a different process for copy editing where they weren't using like track changes because the book was written in Word of all things. So you have to use track changes in Word to track all these things. When you get to the copy editing part, they were just like editing PDFs and changing whatever they felt like and not letting me know what they changed. So I had to go through like line by line through multiple chapters. And that was just, that was a nightmare. Other than that, though, it was pretty straightforward. In terms of the book, in terms of uh, people that help me with the book, I'm very indebted to, uh, I think it's uh, Yanko Moronik. I don't know if you know about him. He's the author of Shrine, quite a few other Ruby libraries. I'm not sure if he's been on Ruby Rogues before, but he's a, he's a really good Ruby developer, writes a lot of uh, very insightful blog posts. I asked him to be the technical reviewer on my book, and um, that's probably the best decision I made related to the book. Uh, he had uh, His review and his insight were incredibly valuable, valuable during the editing process. I ended up cutting probably, you know, at least 10 whole pages based on uh, Yanko's uh, suggestions. And he had tons of great suggestions for improving the book. So one of the big reasons the book is as good as it is, is because of all the input that he gave us. So in terms of after writing the book, I was pretty much on point with the research I did. Uh, It did take hundreds of hours of writing and editing. And uh, at least the advance, which is the only thing I've gotten so far, is I think less than what I, if I had worked at a minimum wage job for the time I spent writing. But it's not something I wrote to make money. It's really something I wrote to, get, to share my ideas. Now, hopefully, I hope the readers and uh, find ideas useful. So that was sort of the story behind Polish Ruby programming. That's awesome. So one of the questions I had was what software you used, and you said Word. Now, is that something that they asked you to do it in, or was it something that you chose to do it in? <laughs> I, I, I wanted to write the book and like markdown, you know, markdown, text editing. Mm-hmm. They want to edit something, they send diffs, I can review them, I can fix them. No, I did end up writing the majority of it in Vim as the initial edit part. Then I had to take all the text out of Vim, I had to paste it into Word, and I had to use all their formatting stuff to get it into the sort of the style they want. They have one word with a bunch of custom classes that you have to use in order to get everything styled correctly. So yeah, using Word is not something I do very often. Um, <laughs> I use occasionally when I absolutely have to, but I did end up using Word a lot of the editing process. And it's not not my favorite program, I'll tell you that. So um, yeah. <laughs> so that aligns a little bit with my experience. I self-published my book, but I wrote it all in Markdown and then I had to figure out how to export it to something that could be exported to Word. So I had to export it to export it. Yeah. And the reason is, is because I couldn't find an editor that I could hire that would do it in Markdown. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and they all, they all balked at Google Docs. So, I mean... <laughs> yeah, it's just word usage is pervasive in that, in that industry. So you just got to yeah. deal with it, grit your teeth. Yeah, and absolutely. I, I was even going to suggest that I was even going to bring up Google Docs because may not necessarily love it per se, but like one of the huge advantages that I feel like it has is it records all of those changes for you that you were complaining about. Yeah. Using track changes in Word for most of the editing wasn't that bad. They do track changes. You could follow each change and like accept it or reject it or modify it. It was really the very end of copy editing where they basically just they publish it into PDF and they start making changes in the PDF without any indication this is what I'm changing and why. 
So that was only a few chapters like that. And it wasn't too, it took a lot of time, but it wasn't too bad and wasn't too extensive at least. So I have here in my notes, another question that's sort of related to this whole vein of thinking, which was, as I read the whole thing, I, I came away thinking that you wanted to write a design pattern book and you ended up writing like 20 chapters before you got to write the design pattern stuff. <laughs> I just wondered if I was off base and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I really wanted to write a design pattern book. I'm not really like big into sort of design patterns in general. So it's not... Um, there, I think there is a chapter on design patterns. I think I picked like a half dozen of them. I discussed their usage in Ruby. But it's not really something that I'm like not into design patterns much in general. Like when I'm programming myself, I'm not really thinking about what design pattern should I use here. I mean, or if I am, it's at a subconscious level. I will say that I'm using the term kind of liberally to also be inclusive of like, here are the things that you should not do, or here are the things that you should do, which is technically not design patterns, but. Yeah. yeah. To, to me, it just I, always fits in the same space. Go I was ahead. actually going to say something something similar in, in design patterns and design in general. I think a lot of what you wrote certainly applies in Ruby. I think you could probably apply it to designing and programming in other languages as well, to some extent. Yeah, I, I definitely think a lot of the... Some of the patterns are definitely Ruby-specific. There's no doubt about it. Chapters on like variable... You know, chapter 3 and 4, which is on like different types of variables and different types of, of method arguments... Those are very specific to Ruby, but a lot of the stuff that I discuss is more or less applicable to a, a wide variety of programming languages. Because, I mean, in general, when you're programming, there are, there's a lot of similarities between programming languages and the same you know, ideas apply across a lot of them. Yeah, but uh, going back to the design patterns as sort of a general recommendations for writing code. Yeah, I mean, when I was writing the book, and even before before I was asked to write a book, I, I had thought about writing a book before. And I think, what, what, what would I like to see in a book? And when I haven't seen in other Ruby books, and I've read a lot of, you know, quite a few Ruby books, a lot of good ones, um, I hadn't seen something that uh, my approach here was, okay, I'm going to want to discuss these topics. I want to give people, here's alternative ways to do things in Ruby. And here's what the trade-offs are. I really wanted to discuss that because that's not an approach that I'd seen in a lot of other Ruby books. I want to discuss alternative approaches and the trade-offs between them and why certain trade-offs may be better in certain situations. Um, because that's why I think an intermediate Ruby program really needs to move to the next level. A lot of the programming books, they focused on teaching beginners how to program, whereas Paltry programming really does not do that at all. It assumes you know Ruby fairly well. I mean, there's things that, you know, if you haven't used Ruby for a while, I don't even like introduce the ideas. I basically just assume that you know them already. And that's a different focus for Paltry programming compared to most other Ruby books. Most of Ruby books, even if they're sort of aimed at intermediate Ruby programmers, will have inter exposition like this is, you know, in review, this is how things work. Paltry Ruby program really just assumes that you are already an inter intermediate Ruby programmer and know fairly well how Ruby works and just want to sort of get to the next level and get better at Ruby programming. Mm -hmm. um, that's sort of the, the, basically the direction I was trying to go. I think you did. Uh, at first, when I was reading those first like two chapters, I was like, Huh, I know that he said that he was aiming this in intermediate to advanced, but like I was like, I can't decide if if I'm even an intermediate here. And then it just like ramped up and and I thought you made it. So <laughs> Yeah, I mean some some people I'll, uh one of the reviewers I, I got said, you know, this book is really it says intermediate to advanced, but it's really intermediate, it's not advanced. Of course, that person was Takashi Kokuban, who wrote Ruby's GIT. So, <laughs> 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 yeah, intermediate. 
might be a little bit different than the average person, is what I'm saying. But yeah, there's certainly, at a certain level, yeah, a lot of, he said a lot, basically a lot of the stuff this book discusses, and I already knew, but I mean, he's an incredibly amazing Ruby programmer and probably knows more about Ruby than I do, so it's it's not too surprising uh, <laughs> for that. I do think the, you know, if you've been programming in Ruby for a few years, I think the book is pretty much aimed at you uh, and will be helpful to you. Yeah, you know, one thing I really loved about the book, Jeremy, is you kind of go in and explain kind of how Ruby's internals work for specific kinds of things. And it was, you know, reading through, I've been working with Ruby for a long time now, you know, over 10 years. And so, like, a lot of the patterns were familiar to me, but I didn't exactly apply it to how Ruby works internally until I was reading through and you would just leave a footnote kind of <laughs> along with. So I'm, I'm kind of glad I stuck through like reading the stuff that I had thought I had already known because there are some kind of like little pieces that you leave everywhere where you're like, oh, that's how it works. Like I could see why it works better this way, especially for like instance variables as an example and singleton class and how the class structures work. It's like definitely stuff that you can take for granted just using Ruby uh, if if that's what you know your career path goes. And like me, <laughs> I just take for granted you you know use Rails. I'll make some libraries in Ruby, but you know I just take the language for granted and don't realize you know a lot of the performance benefits you get. So I guess my question for you is like, do you think about all that stuff while you're coding in Ruby? Uh, I probably not. I mean, most of the work I do. Well, like I said, there's two there's two types of work I do in Ruby. One is like designing uh, web applications is my main thing I do at work. And I don't really do most of the like implementing features. Most of the work I do um, is really working in the libraries, Rhoda, SQL, RhodaAuth that underpin all the applications that are written. Occasionally, I'll get involved in feature development, but usually only when we're fairly busy and important requests come in. In most cases, when the other programmer where I work handles most of the implementation of features and I focus more on the lower level uh, libraries that build it up. So that's that's one part of what I do in Ruby, which is mostly library development. The other part of what I do in Ruby, which started a couple of years ago, is when I became a Ruby committer. And that's when I really had to learn like how Ruby works internally in order to fix you know, many, many, many open bugs in Ruby. Because for, for many years, I think the focus in Ruby internally, I mean, they certainly do a lot of bug fixes, but there's a lot big focus on adding features. And there was a long tail of bugs that had been around for many years that just had not been addressed. So a lot of the work I do there was just looking at an open bug and then figuring out, okay, is this fixable and how to fix it? And the, one of the advantages of that is you end up looking at a lot of code that you know few people end up looking at internally. <laughs> so, I mean, there's not a lot of people, even that, that core Ruby committers that are dealing a lot with the parser and things like that, because it's it's a very complex area. So the breadth of things I had to work on um, while fixing all Ruby bugs has certainly been very helpful um, when I was doing this book. I, I ended up knowing a lot of, a lot of th- pretty much, I don't think I had to do really any research to write the book. The book was written basically with almost no research. It was basically just my ideas from working on Ruby libraries and programs and then working on Ruby internals um, for a few years. So it's not like I, when I was writing, I had only a few cases that I had to look things up. Most things were just sort of in my memory already. I could just write them out. Um, So as a follow-up question of that, is there anything that's changed in the way that you code in Ruby with all of this insight um, that you now have? Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly... 
I, I definitely my if I, if I look at the code I had written ten years ago in Ruby, it's definitely different than the code I, I write now. I think that's true for pretty much everybody. I mean, as you learn more, you pick up better patterns, you get better ideas about how things uh, work. More importantly, you know what things to avoid. There's certainly things that I would have done ten years ago that I look back on and like, especially in library stuff where I like, oh, I should not have done that because now I need to maintain it forever. I've made lots of mistakes like that in SQL's development over the last 13 years I've been maintaining it, where I'm like, you know what, that hack worked in a time, but it really is not a good idea in the long run. So in some cases, it's stuff I sort of inherited. In some cases, it's stuff I screwed up myself and I've had to live with. But in general, you learn more about that as you improve as a programmer, and it's it's stuff that all of us go through. I mean, I think there's no decent programmer that doesn't look at their 10-year-old code and think, wow, it's not very good. You know, or you revisit what? your three-week-old code and go, oh, who wrote this? <laughs> no, no, I, I kind of like my old stuff. If anything, I'm in decline. <laughs> I didn't want you to know, say honestly, anything, Luke, but... One thing I did not <laughs> care for about in the book, and it's not even fair to say that because it's more of the pattern itself that I wish uh, less people used in their applications is the metaprogramming bit. Because I've seen it abused and I've seen it extracted too much to where tracing back and debugging things is extremely difficult. And I think the best case use case for that deep level of metaprogramming that I've seen is more reserved in gems where you don't have the absolute knowledge of how it's getting consumed in the application. So you need to do some things similar to what device does with its metaprogramming around the resource that it's using for authentication. It doesn't know what you were going to call this model. It doesn't know if it's going to be user, admin, or something else. So inferring you know, just a more general resource and constantizing and getting the class, I think is a better use case. And I wish more people would reserve the metaprogramming bit into the gyms instead of in their application where everything is an absolute, absolute known for the most part. So nothing against the book, just more of that practice. Yeah, I think I agree with you. If I, if I look at the applications I develop, my actual like web applications, I very rarely will use metaprogramming in them. Um, metaprogramming is, again, I use it significantly in my libraries. I mean, Rodoth is probably the biggest example. I mean, the entire library is written as a sort of a DSL, which makes it easy to understand once you know about it. But it's, the learning curve is significantly steeper than like, trying to learn about Rhoda or SQL because of the DSL. I am 100% with you that doing excessive metaprogramming at the application level is probably not a good thing. Generally, the metaprogramming I would do with applications is simply like to, instead of defining like 10 functions that do the same thing, I might write a metaprogramming loop to do that, but it's pretty limited. I, I, don't, I try to avoid any advanced metaprogramming in my applications because it makes things more difficult to understand. I like I that know. you... At the, I like that you solves all the problems. I like that oh, you did though introduce at the beginning of that chapter that you're going to learn responsible metaprogramming. So I yeah <laughs> I took the <laughs> you know proceed, proceed with caution. And your explanation was good of the different types. And I think of the the two different paradigms, the block based and the eval based. I I think I'm guilty of using the irresponsible one lately, but I think that I think they're very <laughs> much <laughs> well because I need. 
I, I was working on a plot a plotting application, and so I want to allow the user to type in a, an expression that can reference other variables, and you know, using an eval type thing is pretty easy. Pretty easy to do that, but but I like the concept. And you actually, it's good. You reminded me of more guardrails that I need to put in there. But I like that. I like that term, responsible metaprogramming. It's okay, Darren. I'll send you another box of matches to play with. <laughs> I don't know if you guys uh, used Rails back then, but I remember where you could pass a string to like before action and after action, and Ruby and Rails would invalid to, to perform the action. This was early Rails. I don't know when they removed. I'm assuming they removed it now, but I don't know when. <laughs> What's wrong with that? I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, I'm sure it's useful. In certain cases, it's definitely useful. I mean, I, yeah, oh yeah, about sort of the performance trade-offs about them. So I, I generally, I think I in the past I used eval based probably more than I should have. Now I try to only use the eval based stuff for like things where it's really performance, you know, important to actual real performance. In most other cases, I generally stick with the block based metaprogramming. Yeah, there was a time when all like half or more of the examples that you could find on Stack Overflow and whatnot for here's what you need to do when you've got funky module stuff going on is class eval do, or not even class eval do, it was like class eval pass a string, right? And obviously now that's like so much better. I'm sorry, all of that stuff is just better because like now when you do binding.bry, like you can actually get the line that that happened on even when it's buried in a gem somewhere and it's glassy val on a string, but yeah, I shouldn't say a string. It was always a here doc, but whatever. Even better. <laughs> <laughs> at least, at least when you have to dig in, you can find your line. That's true. But yeah, I, I definitely want to join Dave on the camp of, uh, I definitely thought that you could have pulled out a bigger bat for people. Like I thought that at the end of that chapter, right, you sort of let people get off really easy with the whole like, hey, I have 50 methods and I'm kind of lazy and I don't want to write them. I'm just going to like, create a bunch of methods. And I, I feel like people do that all the time with like three methods. And I'm like, just write three methods, please. Because literally <laughs> no one can find this method in the app because you wrote it that way and you saved yourself one line of code or two, maybe. I agree with you. Three three methods, probably not a good case for better programming. 50 methods, yeah, you probably don't want to write that out longhand. Yeah, but there is, yeah. even with 50 methods, there's something to be said for having explicit code. You can tell what, yeah, this is one of those cases, right, where it's really hard to know where the line is, but when you get way past the line, you know it. You know it, you know it when you see it. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I want to say, um, if you have a lot of methods, it depends on the complexity of the method you're metaprogramming. If you have metaprogramming with a bunch of conditionals inside, yeah, maybe you do want explicit methods or at least separate loops where all the methods are the same. It's better if you're metaprogramming to make the metaprogrammed methods as simple as possible because bugging complex metaprogrammed methods is more difficult than, you know, regular methods. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely think that I have no problems with the one-liners where you have like, I don't know, an attribute and you're you're creating like query methods for all of them or something. So you're just adding a question mark to every mm -hmm. single one. Don't care about that at all. But yeah, when you start to ramp up the components, good points. Yeah, I actually did something like that a week or two ago. And what it was, was that depending on how I had things set up, I could have different fields going into a JSON field in my database in Postgres, right? And so because I didn't know what those fields were, but I wanted getters and setters set up on my 
active record classes to translate it into JSON. Yeah, I did some metaprogramming just to set those up. But it looks a whole lot like, make this look like they're just regular Rails attributes. Mm -hmm. I think the most complex metaprogramming thing that I had to do on a application was where a user got to order rules in a way that they want. And the order in which those rules are in is going to change how it's executed. So when the user on the front end is ordering these rules and the calculations are then triggered to run and go through, each one of those rules is associated to an actual Ruby class that would then execute. You don't always know what that class is. So I did use a little bit of metaprogramming in the final calculator to pull out what class is this needing to run and then execute, you know, constantize and execute that class. And that was like the bulk of the metaprogramming that I've done in applications. And for lack of better ways of doing it, that was a pretty isolated use case. And it didn't in interfere with the searchability of the code or anything like that, especially when we're talking about our error logs and trying to trace back where something actually triggered an error. So I'm curious, because uh, I've, I've seen books like this before that have some kind of best practices to them, or, hey, this is going to make your code better, or cleaner, or this or that, right? And more than half the time, the author has put their pet peeves in it, right? It's like, whenever people do this, I just want to scream, right? So what are your pet peeves? What are your pet peeves that got made it into the book? Okay, so let's see, pet peeves that made it into the book. I don't know. I mean, the book, again, I don't, I, I think when, when we talk about style, I tried to avoid, I, I have stylistic ways. I, my Ruby code looks probably slightly different than average. I mean, as you can tell from the book, I'm not a huge fan of RoboCop. Sorry, RuboCop to automatically style your code, automatically format. I think we call I call it syntactic consistency to enforce syntactic. Mm -hmm. My ten, my my code tends to be a little bit more idiosyncratic to me, so it's a little bit different. I'd say than average Ruby code. But again, I'm not dogmatic about that. I deal with a lot of other Ruby code that's written in a wide variety of styles, and I don't really have a problem with it. So I definitely the the that that chapter talks about sort of the poet and the philosopher as different ideas for people that really want consistency in their style and people that like a, a uh, sort of a diverse group of styles. I'm definitely much more on the poet side of the spectrum than on the philosopher side. So I don't really have pet peeves too much in terms of that. Obviously, some pet peeves I have are like use of class variables, <laughs> which I tell people, you know, there's, there's, there's not a lot of the book that I say, never do this. There's only a few things like never use class variables, pretty much, is one thing the book says. The other thing that says never do Never implement a metric, like never use RuboCop's metrics. So never say you can only have this many lines in method or this many methods. <laughs> those are, oh, I hate that. Those are two things that are always, always, always a bad idea. Because if, again, think about the metrics. I mean, class variables have their own issues. It is possible to use them correctly. But in any case where you could use them correctly, there's probably a better approach, which the book outlines, I think, a few different approaches to replacing class variables. In terms of like metrics, enforcing metrics in via linter like RuboCop, I think it always, 100% of the time, makes the code worse. Because if there was a way to write the method better that fit inside the metric, wouldn't you use it anyways? Really, all it does is it forces someone to break up a large method simply for the point of breaking it up. 
Now, you can break it up in a good way. I mean, there's certainly good ways to break methods up. Um, if you think about your metrics only, uh, you know, met- their metric enforcement only as a reminder, hey, you probably might want to look at this. It's probably not terrible. But enforcing metrics dogmatically always makes code worse because it's perfectly fine to have a method that's 20 lines, as long as, you know, it reads nicely and there's no need to modify the internals. Uh, really, when you should break up a large method is maybe when it does completely different things and you can reuse different parts and different methods. Taking a method that's, you know, 20 lines long and again, having three seven line methods does not make the method better. It really, <laughs> um, you have to have a reason to do that. I mean, reusing code in another method because it does mm. the same thing, good reason to do it. But taking a 20 line method and just doing, you know, taking a foo method and making foo one, foo two, foo three, which is kind of an extreme case, but it's something you definitely see simply to get around these metric things. I think it's a very bad idea. So break up a large method if there's a good reason for breaking it up, not just because it's too big. Same thing with a class. Sometimes it makes sense to have a class that has a lot of methods. Sometimes it makes sense to have a class with really small, you know, a short number of methods. And again, you never see someone complain about small classes. You only see people using uh, like these metrics to say, hey, break up a large class, which is not always a good thing. In some cases it can be, but it is definitely not always a good thing. So I, don't, I definitely don't think any of those metrics should be enforced dogmatically. I think forcing such metrics dogmatically always does make the code worse. That's my personal opinion. It's not obviously shared by everybody in the Ruby community. <laughs> it's probably very controversial. But that is that is my feeling. And that's when you ask about like, how do my, what are my pet peeves like? I'm sort of pushing the book. There's not much, but that is one of them. So I think it's interesting know, too, because the metrics on. rules in RuboCop those are just comment generators for my team. I mean, it's, it's, it, turn it off and turn it back on, right? Sometimes, uh, you know, I'll be like, crack my knuckles and then go, all right, let me try something, right? And I'll get it from over 18 to under 18 on the ABC. And then, yeah, because we have all of that stuff enforced on the project I work on. Yeah. Where is this like yeah. the one line over? <laughs> yeah. Well, if if you're one line over, yeah, I've gotten creative there too, to be honest. But yeah, I, I've never broken it up to like foo one and foo two. I always just okay, just just skip it for this one. But the problem is, is you skip it for that one, and then when you come back and you change it later, it's not going to relint it. it. So it's not going to look at it again and tell you, oh, you might have done something here that you could do better. But yeah, I, it has prompted me to make my code better in a lot of instances. It's just in just as many instances, it's prompted me to say. Okay, disable it here and then re-enable it here because this is as good as it's going to get and it's fine. Are you trying to say, Chuck, that methods can be beautiful at any size? Yes. I don't fat <laughs> chain my methods. I like that. I feel like, I feel like someone is picking, picking for what they want to hear out of that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, hey, size does matter sometimes. I, I do Harry, like do, you, do you have a suggestion sharing. for like you know, how to better signal for cases like this? Like, is there a way we could use RuboCop to instead of autofix to just produce a better signal during development? Well, one of the things the book recommends, I don't know, I don't know anybody that's using this. The, the configuration option exists, and I talk about it in the book, but I don't know anyone actually uses it. There's a, a RuboCop, I think, setting that you can say, like, disable all rules by default. Basically, only enable specific RuboCop rules. And that's, again, 
Mm-hmm. One, of my, one of my advice is if you want to try to find a happy medium for something that's too strict and something that's you know not strict enough, disable all rules by default. And then when something comes up during code review and people are complaining about it, add that specific rule in. And that way, you start enforcing that. Basically, only add the rules that are important to you that are going to reduce problems during code review and leave everything else alone. That's sort of what's one of the recommendations in the book. Again, I don't see any of the Ruby projects doing that. I don't personally do it because I don't use RuboCop at all. So it's not something uh, that I'm talking about from any sort of um, uh, experience. But if I was going to use RuboCop, that is how I would use it. Yep. And that's exactly what I was going to say, is that on certain projects I work on, there are very strict things that uh, the code review folks will just immediately bark back on and there's a lot of other things that like 90% of Rubicop uh, and what they enforce that they ju- the code review just doesn't care about. So I'm like, okay, well, I'm not trying to do the bare minimum skate by here, but also I don't want my code review to be held up by styling because that's all it is. It's not going to change the output of the code. It just changes how it looks. And so I will, on certain projects, will disable all the rules by default and only add in for this particular project what the team has agreed upon. These are the things that are deal breakers for us. And as I'm developing in VS Code, because I have the RuboCop extension, it'll actually flag me on that file that there are some violations of it. So I think that for a team setting, it's not a bad idea to really say, for this project, here's what we really care about as far as style metrics go. And everything else, well, you know, we'll put some more extreme examples, you know, maybe 50 lines per method to where it's not a deal breaker for us. But you know what? we need to be aware and concerned about methods that you're writing that are more than 50 lines. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess at some point, there is an, there is an upper limit that like, eh, really no method should be larger than that. Challenge uh, accepted. <laughs> oh boy. I, I will say, I, I know in SQL, there's a method, I, I, I'm pretty sure that's like 500 lines long, <laughs> but it's a bunch of like setup code for like defining uh, like call, you know, basically, not only callbacks, but it's for defining advanced associations, and there's a lot of stuff it's setting up. It's a whole bunch of separate stuff. So it's really one 500-line method, but it's defining a bunch of smaller like things for individual associations. But that would it would certainly get flagged in RuboCop, no matter what you know what reasonable size you put in. But yeah, this is this is really long. So yeah, like the method size isn't one that I freak out over too much. I mean, I'll look at it and say, can I extract a method here? But the ABC size, I mean, sometimes I'm just sitting there and I get so frustrated because I'll change something, you know, and it's cleaner and it looks nicer and it lowers the ABC size by like 0.2 or something. Right. And I'm like, I'm like, all right, fine, fine. I'm going to put like 80 loops with like 20 arguments on each and we'll see what the ABC size is now. (laughs) And so, yeah, I, I hear you on a lot of that. But at the same time, I mean, I do like having it at least initially when I write new code raising the flag and saying, hey, this is long, or hey, this is complex, or hey, you know, this doesn't meet this other deal. And then I can actually go, okay, is there something here I can improve? Because a lot of times I'm just focused on, does the thing work? 
right? And then I go to do the PR and I run RuboCop and then I'm like, oh, oh yeah, I should be thinking about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of torn on this topic because on one hand, like how much time listening to you tell, talk about that, how much time did you end up spending essentially just playing games to try to get the metrics to come out the way the way that you want, right? Like it's good. <laughs> it forces you to think about it. So you have to go through the thought exercise. So that part of it is good. But then we probably also, like we've all done some version of what you just described, spend time tweaking when, you know, we probably could have moved on. Now, on the other hand, functional code is arguably the most important thing. However, like these things are important, right? Because code is read much more often than it's written. Like people, people are going to, on your team and people who aren't even on the team yet, they will be in the future. There's going to be a lot more time spent of people reading that code than you are writing it right now. So it is important to think about. So I'm always kind of torn on these topics. Yeah. I mean, one thing I, I think about is you want to aim for the total overall least complexity. So even if there's more complexity in one part, like a particular method, if it decreases the total complexity, it's probably a good shift. Whereas it's total complexity is not something that's something you can objectively measure, really. It's something that as you use the code, is it easy to make changes? Is it easy to work on? Those are more subjective things. And again, they're subjective because different people might find different styles of writing code easier to work on. I don't personally find the code where every method is three lines and everything is well abstracted and everything is in different files and different classes. I don't particularly find that code necessarily easy to use, even if it is very easy to test. So my style is generally for larger classes in cases where they're needed. I mean, certainly I have a lot of small classes too, but I don't have a problem running a large class with hundreds of methods if I think it's going to decrease the total overall complexity of the library application. Hey folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump on real quick and let you know that I am putting together a podcasting course. I get asked all the time. I've been coaching people for the last six months. How do you start a podcast? How do you put it together? What do I need in order to get it going, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I've put together the curriculum. And I did it through coaching a whole bunch of people. And now I want to share it with you. You can go check out the course. It's actually going to be a masterclass. It's going to be a four-week masterclass where I actually walk you through the entire process of launching a terrific-sounding podcast and putting together content that people want to listen to. And you can find it at podcastbootcamp.io. You know, talk about the number of jumps. So if in a controller action, you call out to a class... That class then calls out to another class, and that class calls out to another class. When you start jumping 10, 12 levels deep, it's really tough to keep that all in your head on a single request. And so, you know, I'm right there with you on having a larger class if it makes sense, if it doesn't violate the single responsibility, because you don't want a single class doing so much that you're afraid to change it out of fear of it breaking something else. But at the same time, you go the flip side and you jump so many levels deep just to get to that one bit of code that you need to change. Well, is that clean code really all that clean for a lifecycle of a request? No, it, it's more complicated than if it was all in one class breaking the single responsibility role or something like that. So I will point out that having talked to Bob Martin about Solid multiple times, single responsibility principle says that the code that is likely to 
change together should stay together. So if you have split it up so that it calls through a chain like that, and you're going to have to maintain it through a chain like that, you have violated the single responsibility principle. All that stuff should be mostly self-contained in one place. Yes. So actually, this this is completely leading in. So I'll be the person to to actually disagree with you guys a little bit because I don't know how far apart we really are because I think at the end of the day, right, what we're really trying to solve for is, hey, I want to make this uh, or I want to have enough constraints so that I actually think about my code, right? But I, I need to make it easy for me to like bail when like, well, this is working code. It's good. I feel really good about it. But but I don't want like my RuboCop just complaining arbitrarily, right? Like at the same time, like I actually think this is like super. I think it's super important to have something, right? That uh, that's the whole process of code review, right? In general, and I think that having a bot handle a large portion of code review, specifically like if you care about how things look. Like having a bot do that for you rather than a person. If you don't care about how things look, maybe you don't need that bot, right? Doing that, right? Like, I feel like some of that is what I'm hearing, right? Like, I definitely heard you, Jeremy, saying, like, I'm not actually that concerned or whatever about how it looks. I can read somebody else's code. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, so I feel like all of that's important, right? Like, pick, have the bot do the thing that, that you want it to do and, and no more, right? Like, have it stop would be more or less where I go. But the reason why I brought this up like right after we were talking about solid is because I think that in many cases, we complain about... Uh, we bring up these examples these that are kind of extreme when they're... like For example, we've been talking a lot about how, oh, shoot, I hit code review and RuboCop complained about the ABC complexity of my code. And I'm literally... I'm not thinking about refactoring my method here. We're all talking about like when we're sitting here just trying to get the ABC count like low enough so that we can get it to pass, right? Which is not the goal of RuboCop, right? Or it's not the goal, uh, theoretically, of that thing. The goal, theoretically, of that thing is to say, hey, this smells really bad. You should, you should think about this before you commit it. And if, if you look at it and you're like, actually, this is fine, right? Then, then you need a way to bail, right? And anyway, I think, I think RuboCop makes that kind of tough. Like, I think that if you... I don't know. I kind of like... The tough part is like automated tools don't handle smells very well, which is, I think, what we're all like dealing with. But automated tools are pretty good at finding a lot of stuff. I don't know. I work on a lot of app... Or I work on a lot of apps where we have these 500 line methods that that are not solid. (laughs) Like, they're, they're literally 500 line imperative methods with tons of branching ifs, right? And literally no one has any. And they're like, and we're all editing the same method, right? In multiple branches all over the place because it's so many things going on. So these tools do work for that for certain code bases like that, right? They help us totally find those smells. Of course, you can't just like turn on RuboCop and let it go. We have to slowly work at it. But anyway, I, I think it depends. Like you just have to use... How should, what I'm trying to get at is like when you're writing a completely new code base, maybe it'll help you identify new smells. When you're working on like a legacy code base, right? It can help you find some of those old smells that are there. But like, yeah, you gotta have a way to bail. Yeah, just use the metric. Will future me hate me, hate present me <laughs> for writing this? 
Uh, hard to predict the future, though. And uh, to get back to the other point, it's not that I don't care how code looks. I just don't care that it looks the same. I don't have like, this is how code should look. Like certain languages like Go, it's like very, even some, some, some Python. This is how it should look. Ruby is not that. Uh, the Zen of Python. It's fair. The Go Proverbs. Yeah. So it's like, you know, Ruby is not that language. Ruby is a language where it is supposed to be more poetic. That's why you have if and unless and modifier if and unless. It's supposed to be written in a lot of different ways. That's how Matt's designed it. Specifically, be more pearlish in that there's more than one way to do it. There's more than one way to write this. It doesn't all have to be the same. Again, not everyone feels that way. A lot of people, if it looks different, it they don't like it. I mean, there's a, that's something that's very different for each programmer in terms of how comfortable they are with with syntactic, you, know, you could say, unimportant differences. So again, because there's there's a whole spectrum of people that are very comfortable and not comfortable at all, and a lot of people mostly are somewhere in the middle. So mm-hmm. uh, it's I think it is a very much a team to team thing about how does the team feel about this and picking something that's appropriate. I just think in a lot of cases, people just say, oh, the standard just use RuboCop. We'll just use RuboCop with the defaults and leave them as is. And then, uh, because that's what everyone else does. I think that's, I don't want that to be the default. I don't think it's a good default. And hopefully, hopefully one of the things the book does is it nudges people in the direction of not making that the default in their future libraries. Gotcha. Well, now we know how you feel about 99 bottles of clean your freaking code up. Maybe another another thing to say on that is that RuboCop isn't going to work, right? If your team doesn't care, like your team has to care, right? Like we're we're discussing this from the standpoint of people that care, and if your team doesn't care, then then that's then the bad behavior that we were talking about earlier is what's going to happen. People are just going to get in under the numbers, and and not actually be motivated to get rid of the thing that caused the smell in the first place. It reminds me actually of a joke. Do you know how many programmers it takes to change a light bulb? None. The light bulb has to want to change. <laughs> oh, jeez. Terrible, Darren. Well done. The, I want to talk about uh, code locality. This okay. is a phrase that comes up in the book. It's not a phrase I've seen before. It's a phrase I love. I love the phrase code locality. I've been using it to beat to death various other code conspirators. Code locality, what's it mean? Where does it come from, Jeremy? So the idea of uh, code locality is that it's best if you can keep uh, the code that you're working on localized, which means like if you can see it all on one screen, that's the best because it keeps you a good mental picture of what things are, what, what I'm doing. If your code is not local, if it's spread into 15 different files when you have to look for it, it makes it much more difficult to keep in your head, makes it much more difficult to change. Having it all in front of you, um, where you can see it all at once, generally makes the code much easier to work on. So when you extract classes, when you extract methods, you're generally removing code locality, you're you're, you're decreasing code locality. That doesn't mean that's always bad. Again, you're increasing other things, you can increase reuse. There's, there's, it's 100% trade-offs. You have to pick the appropriate trade-off. I'm just saying in a lot of cases, people don't consider the loss of code locality when they do things like extracting methods and extracting classes, things like that. I like this idea because I'm a big fan of a 500 line method. In fact, if I could make, if I could make all my code have 500 line methods, with lots of if statements, I would do it because that's what the computer does. You know, that's what it is. It's all ones and zeros and BEQ statements and assembler. The other parallel phrase, which I love, 
is class proliferation. So this kind of bring, conjures up a picture of uh, weapons of mass abstraction mm. and the idea that the classes can proliferate and, uh, and cause some kind of incident. And the great phrase, I think that's, that's, that's quite clear. Everyone knows what uh, class proliferation means. But the other spice take which I picked up on was the idea that abstractions are not intrinsically useful. This is, this is probably the spiciest sentence in the whole book. The idea that abstractions are not intrinsically useful, because the whole Isn't thrust, this OP? come on, the whole thrust of um, uh, programming for the last well since the mid nineties for me has been this idea that if you abstract your code into object like things, the world will magically become a better place. So, so which, which abstractions is what I want to know. The book's very vague on this. Which, what are the bad abstractions? Call them out now, Jeremy. All right. Any abstraction that is not necessary and does not sort of reduce complexity. If you abstract something and it adds complexity, it's worse. The idea of code basically is to keep it as simple as possible because as code gets more complex, there's more things that are going to go wrong, 100%. Basically, if you increase complexity, you're almost always going to make things more difficult to work on, more likely to have bug bugs in your code. Keeping things as simple as possible is the best way to do that. Adding abstraction generally increases complexity. Again, there's a trade-off. In some cases, you can add an abstraction and use it in multiple places and decrease overall complexity. But if you use if you take something that's in a single place, and you abstract it, and you don't reuse the abstraction elsewhere, you're generally increasing the complexity and not decreasing it, and probably making the code worse. So, so why, Jeremy, why, if we turn to page 179, this is an ambush, by the way, why do we have <laughs> on page 179 this awful... What is this? Some kind of symmetrical? What is it? I mean, I can't say. I spent hours on this. I spent hours on this. I thought, is it me? Is it Ruby Free? What's going on on page? You're going to have to explain what it is. This is an for those that don't have the book in front of them. Chapter, and the only it, what line right before it is the basically the only time you should worry about formatting your code is when you're formatting it for artistic effect, and that's my very bad way of basically making something which is formatted completely for artistic effect. You run this code, it does not do anything. It defines a that you don't call. It doesn't do anything. I'm actually not very good at this, and that's why it's not very good. Someone who is excellent at this, uh, who's amazing at it, um, there's a Ruby committer, uh, it goes by Mame. It's uh, Yusuke uh, Endo. Uh, he actually has a whole book of esoteric Ruby code, or not just Ruby code. I mean, he, he's also like the world's leading. Uh, there's this international obfuscated C contest. Basically, you can write the most obscure C code possible. And he wins this on a regular basis. He comes in, he's a winner of the various parts of it. And he has tons of things where it's just beautifully formatted code, which like he'll write code that looks like a Ruby and does something actually useful. It's, he's incredible. I don't know how he does it because it's, it's amazing. That, that was sort of my take on it is the only time you, you, that formatting is super important is if you look at the source code, you want it to look like something like you look at the source code and it looks like the Mona Lisa or it looks like a Ruby, or it looks like something else. When you're designing code for that, then you really care how it looks. Otherwise, what the code does, semantic understanding uh, of the code is much more important than how the particular syntax that you're using. That was sort of the point in there. Was kind of, again, the particular example you're pointing at doesn't do anything, so it's 
it's kind of worth, worthless in that regard. It's simply to make the point that in general, syntactic formatting of your code is not the most important thing to worry about. So that's sort of what the example is trying to show. The, basically, the only time it is important is when you're trying to do something artistic um, with the way the source code looks. Which is I spent a long time on this this page trying I, to work out if this I, was some I, kind of obscure Ruby three <laughs> feature that I missed that suddenly made this all, all this click. I apologize for that. I really did not want anyone <laughs> spending hours on this. Not very good. The idea is it's kind. It is supposed to be symmetric, and then look kind of nice. And it, 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 I think it does do that. I think it is symmetric in pretty much most directions. I mean, there's not really a, a backwards exclamation or backwards question mark, but otherwise it's pretty symmetric. So that's sort of what I was going for there. Probably not the best the best part of the book. I'll give you that. <laughs> which uh, which yeah. leads me nicely on to the Ruby Free on the back hang, of hang on, so I want to... I go wanted on. to back up for a second, but go ahead. I said, on the back book, it says that these principles are specific to Ruby free. Now, I've had a hard look in this book. I've had a hard look in this book. And I thought, oh, any minute now, Jeremy will drop something in this book, which is exclusive to Ruby free. Yes, it's in there somewhere. I bet you, if you take all of the examples in the book, you like, you know, the source code is on GitHub. If you run all of them, at least one will fail on Ruby three or on Ruby less than three. Well, I've, that just proves me wrong because I thought this was a cynical marketing ploy, and I'm I'm very glad to hear that it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't a cynical marketing ploy, and there are indeed features exclusive to Ruby Free in this book. Yeah, I will tell you, the book in general does not focus on Ruby Three. I mean, there there is, like, I think, one or two examples in the book that are specific to Ruby Three. There's some few other ones that are specific to more recent versions of Ruby, but a lot of the book, I say, the vast majority of the book. If you're on Ruby 1.9, it's going to, vast majority of the book covers like Ruby 1.9 and up. It's it's really not specific to Ruby 3. I, I don't know how, how much I was involved with the back cover stuff. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of that was, I, I think I probably wrote the initial versions, but that was augmented by the marketing team as I'll refer to it. Yeah. Now, I want to back up just for a minute because we kind of skimmed right on past when we were talking about the class proliferation and stuff like that. And what's interesting is that I see a lot of people like they'll they'll hear people talk about that kind of stuff and they're, they they don't understand that they actually have that problem. And it's sitting in your Rails app in slash app slash junk drawer, I mean, slash app slash services or slash lib slash something, right? And you've created the poros, the plain old Ruby objects, to do a thing. And then you've created another poro to keep your other poro happy. And sometimes it's, you know, Rubicop class length. And sometimes it's just, oh, well, all this stuff kind of looks the same. And so we're going to put it in another class. And, and everybody does this to a certain degree, right? I mean, whether it's kind of stacking all this stuff up in your models or whether you have modules or concerns that you're pulling in or your, you have plain old Ruby objects that are services that blah, 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 or sometimes it actually winds up in app jobs in Rails apps or whatever the corollary is to whatever you're using. And so I, I really do want to call this out because I see it more often than people are really willing to admit that they have this going on. And to go back to what Dave was talking about earlier, you really do want to be able to, you know, with the code locality, work on all that stuff that's changing together and moving together in the same place, unless you have a really good reason for it to not be together, like you said, for reuse and things like that. But yeah, go look. 
Go find your junk drawer because I guarantee you your app, if it's existed for more than three days, has one. So all of a hot take here. If you have an object that could be a method, it's probably better a method than an object. So what I mean by that... What I mean by I've done this. That's why I'm laughing. <laughs> if you have a, if you have an object or a class and you pass in a like the state for the class, like what you consider like method arguments, you pass it into the initializer and you call one method on it and you never use the object again, and it really operates just as a method with some local variables and you're sort of abstracting a new object from it without actually reusing the object anywhere, probably a bad decision makes your code worse. Have a, a method can do the job and you don't need a full object, don't have a full object. It's better to have a class method somewhere uh, or singleton method somewhere than it is to have a, a new class that's something that you're only going to instantiate and call once and not call over and over. I see that pattern recommended a lot in Rails apps and I, I don't think it makes things better. It does make your classes smaller, but then you have tons of them and that really doesn't make things better, in my opinion. Well, so one thing I, I just, just have noticed... It split vertically <laughs> and then you can edit them both at once. Uh, one thing, Jeremy, I noticed missing from the book that I was kind of hoping for more of uh, was kind of functional style programming in, in Ruby. And I'm wondering if that's something that maybe you're just not for or if that it's there's not enough uh, preparation in, in Ruby to accept kind of a lot of the paradigms for functional programming in Ruby. Yeah, I, I would say... That's what JavaScript's for. <laughs> I actually use a lot of, of functional design in Ruby. I think my libraries go further than most in terms of uh, use of frozen objects, methods, you know, basically frozen classes that are always frozen and methods that return modified versions of that. SQL is basically, SQL's data sets are 100% like that, functional in that respect, in that the data set is, it's basically like a functional object. And then if you call methods on it, they return new data sets. That's basically how... SQL's data sets work. But I mean, a lot of my libraries go further than that. You're expected to, to freeze your model classes in SQL, or at least you're recommended to freeze your model classes in SQL. You freeze the database object in SQL. Most of the things are basically ours. You set the object up and you freeze it before you start accepting requests. And you can make sure it's not getting modified in ways you don't expect at runtime. SQL's designed that way. Rota's designed that way. Basically, I'm very much for functional programming in Ruby. There's actually not too much in the book that's specific for object-oriented programming. A lot of the book is just general recommendations for Ruby programming. Uh, I mean, there is some stuff, but a lot of the stuff is like variable usage, method arguments. There's a little bit on class design, which is object-oriented, but there's not there's not a big portion of the bucket of the book that's even aimed at object-oriented programming. Because again, in some cases, I personally like using objects. Um, I mean, that's why we use Ruby. But I think objects, um, in a lot of cases, more is just data structures with functions attached. So I do have a functional view when I'm designing a lot of things. Um, but I'm also not pure functional. I often will use mutation to make things simpler. There are some things where it's not allowing mutation to make things, it makes things more complex. So you have to restructure your code to use recursions and iteration and things like that. Um, I guess my approach, and I talk about this, I think, a little bit in the book, you basically want something that's globally sort of immutable. So basically, you want as much as possible, don't make things that are shared by multiple objects and classes and threads mutable. But it's fine to have mutability in sort of a local scope where you can easily see what's going on. That's sort of my approach is that not all immunity, immunity in general is good, 
But there, it's not like all mutability is a problem. Allowing mutability in localized areas can make things much simpler. So I think that my book doesn't discuss that that much, but it does mention it a little bit. So if we're if we're all like chilling at this reduce the number of classes out there symposium or class on proliferation, whatever we're going to call it. Um, yeah, <laughs> I definitely feel like the functional movement has sort of taught us that people are really bad at writing OOP, right? Like, like our complaints, I think, are very indicative of that. You try and teach, you're like, hey, look, here's a really good pattern for when you're really caring about what you're doing. Here's a good refactoring pattern. And boom. I mean, I don't, if you guys remember, like before we had the concerns folder in Rails, right? Like everyone had like a mix-ins or a modules folder and stuff, right? That was the old common junk drawer, right? Now that now that people know what they're supposed to do with concerns, they took this really cool idea with services and they're like, sweet. So I can put all of my junk in there. Awesome. Mm-hmm. So we moved it from the controllers to the models. Now it's in the services folder. I'm waiting for what's next. Probably moving it to decorators next, I think. But the the point that I'm trying to get at is like I feel like at the end of the day, the lesson from all of this, right, is that it doesn't like programs are just, you know, we're trying to teach them we're trying to teach other people good stuff. We probably have bad habits ourselves when we actually walk away and have to actually be accountable to somebody that's not just ourselves. We discovered that we did something really stupid too. We're just like not good at, at OOP. Actually, to be honest, I don't think that we're good at functional programming either. I think that I think that we all think that this this new paradigm is going to save us. I'm just happy to be a Rubyist, so I can just move back to the other side whenever I want. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think we've all seen a lot of bad OEP, and we've probably also seen not as much bad functional programming. That's probably simply because OOP is more popular. If everything was functional and few things were object oriented, we'd, we'd see more bad functional programming, in my opinion. Right. Right. Cool. Well, I'm going to push us to picks. I'll give a oh. final thought on. Okay. The book. In the book, in the infrastructure section, you mention monolith, microservices, and island chaining. And I'm going to say, and I'm going to stand firm on this island chaining is a gateway drug to microservices. So you should just avoid island chaining. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, I don't know that I agree with that 100%. I think the, the main thing that differentiates the way the book describes it, island chain approach versus microservices is microservices, every microservice basically uses its own data store and they don't talk to each other. Whereas the island chain approach basically, sort of like an island chain is sort of supported underneath the water. It's sort of the same thing underneath the water. You just can't see it. Um, You just see the parts that rise above the water. That's sort of the island chain approach is there's different sort of visual parts of it that that are publicly accessible. But the core of it, the model layer is sort of shared between the island chains um, and again, a lot of the reason that I recommend this approach is for higher security environments where you want to separate what one island can see and what one island can't see. So that happens more in my uh, applications. It's quite frequent to have sort of a public interface that looks vastly different than the internal interface the administrators are using. And the admins can have a lot more access to the database and things like that than a regular user has. So that's sort of one of the reasons I, I recommend this approach, especially for high security environments, is it allows you to basically have clear walls actually enforced by the operating system in the database to separate things so that if someone hacks your public website, they can only do what the other people on the public website can do. They don't have full internal access. So they're 
the amount of damage they can do is is limited. So basically a way to get higher security by separating things, having actual security barriers at the operating system and database level, which I very rarely, other than my own applications, I don't know any other Rails applications or Ruby applications, I mean, that use this approach. It's certainly possible, but I just don't see anyone else doing it. Yeah, I can get behind that thinking. Yeah, I agree with you, Dave, though. I mean, the, the, the highs are way better on microservices than they are on the island chain. So anyway, uh, let's go ahead oh, and do some picks. Sorry, one last thing real quick, Jeremy. I just wanted to, I wish you had this book written a few years ago when I made my own library. <laughs> I know, Slacker. It's like it's like a how-to guide of how to make a great open source library for anybody listening out there. <laughs> but one thing I, I will call out is that you recommended adding an example at the very top of the readme or the website or whatever library you put out there. So please, anybody making a new library, do that. It's a great idea. Yep. All right. Well, I'm going to push us to picks. Make sure that we get through this in time for everybody to get to where they need to be. Hey, folks, it's Charles Maxwood. And I just wanted to jump in here and let you know about something that I'm doing. It's free. It's out there just to help you get answers to your questions about the things that you're running into with your career. So if you have questions about how to get further ahead in your career, how to start a podcast, how to get a better job, how to get a raise, how to deal with a situation at work with your boss, or just maybe you're stuck and you don't know where to go next. You know, how do I get from junior to senior, senior to whatever's next? How do I become a speaker? How do I get to the next level? That's what I'm out here to do. So every Wednesday at 12 o'clock Mountain Time, I'm going to be doing a call and it's going to be free, totally free. Go to devchat.tv slash level up and you can register for the call. It's using Zoom's webinar software. So it's pretty straightforward. And what we're going to be doing is I'll do 10 minutes and I'll just show you how I do some form of how I level up. And then we'll just answer questions. And it's not going to be a question and answer like, hey, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And then I say, Rocky Road or whatever, right? Instead, what we're looking for is more along the lines of, yeah, I have the situation. How do I handle it? I'm trying to figure this thing out. How do I figure it out? I'm trying to stay current. How do I stay current? And if you have any of those kinds of questions, I'll bring you on the call. We'll ask some deeper questions. We'll make sure we get you a solid answer. And I'm really looking forward to helping some people out. There will be no sales, no selling, no nothing on these calls. It is literally just 10 minutes of training and then Q&A. So you can go check it out at devchat.tv slash level up. Let's start out with Valentino. What are your picks? I just have one pick this week. Rubikaigi Takeout is now on YouTube. Jeremy actually has a talk I'm looking forward to watching on uh, optimizing backtrace, par uh, partial backtraces, I think. So if you are interested, uh, there's always some great content that comes out of uh, the Ruby Kagi conference. So I recommend you checking it out. Nice. John, what are your picks? I've actually got two. So uh, so one was inspired by a comment that Darren made earlier where he was talking about doing all the eval stuff earlier. And it uh, reminded me about a recent thing that I've been working on and I'm getting I've gotten back working on the past couple of weeks or whatever, where basically just have like custom rule sets that are arbitrary and can be entered by your users or whatever, which is sounds like a great, great time for an eval. But then a while back I discovered like a peg parser or whatever, 
which actually ended up being a much better choice because it gave me the ability to not only be able to take the input and be able to eval it, but then also be able to parse why an answer was was gotten to or whatever. So I could say, ah, oh, well, you you failed the if condition, you know, here in the tree, and therefore that's that's why you you got a false instead of a true or whatever, right? So anyway, so I'll I'll uh, throw that library in the picks as well. The one that I used was called Parslet. I think there's a few of them out there, if I recall correctly from when I was looking at it. I picked this one because I thought that it had the best API. And I pretty much do everything by like, I want an API that I think is like, is going to fit what I'm doing or is easy to use. So I, I often pick my libraries by that and then just deal with the consequences occasionally because sometimes the library isn't as awesome as I thought it was. But this one was, this one was actually really great. So uh, that's Parslet. And then the other thing is I have been trying to decide recently what I'm going to do to like upgrade my computer since like CPUs cost a million dollars right now and graphics cards are like at least 10 a piece, you know, for one that they made 10 years ago. So like trying to upgrade your computer right now is a little rough, but I've been making some, I've been making some good strides and I bought some, some speakers. I didn't realize that good speakers were actually really cheap. For like fifty bucks, it was just over fifty bucks. I got some pretty, pretty nice speakers. They're actually pretty good. Like I have like no clipping, and when I would normally get that, it's great. So anyway, so I'll put those in there too. So those are my picks for the week. Awesome, Dave. What are your picks? All right, so I have two picks. One is OctoPrint, which is installable on a Raspberry Pi, and it allows you to control a three D printer. I have a Creality 3D printer, which its onboard Wi-Fi box controller just messed up and would stop communicating to the printer. And I got frustrated with it. So I ran a wire from the internals of it out to a Raspberry Pi and OctoPrint. It's not only creating better prints with the exact same G-code, but it actually works. So before the Creality was pausing and extruding a little bit, so I was getting these little bubbles. And I don't know what the issue was. Maybe I have a defective unit, but Octoprint saved my day. And it also does time-lapse videos, which is super cool. And the other pick, it's a paid product, but it's one that I really like. It's called Shuffle. Dot dev that's the website shuffle.dev and you can create different UI layouts or templates really quickly with Tailwind Bootstrap Material or Boomla so Bulma Bulma whatever it's called and so <laughs> it's it's pretty awesome i mean it is a bit pricey it's $25 a month or $150 one-time lifetime license. But I picked up the lifetime license because I see myself using this for the uh, distant future. And you know, it's really nice. It has a VS Code extension, which you just put in your API key. And then you can just get all of these snippets and components right there in your editor. You never have to actually visit their website. And then just click copies it. You just paste it over into your site. Now you have that little component there. Nice. All right, Darren, what are your picks? Okay, the first pick is kind of inspired by our earlier conversation. We we're talking about your process for writing. And I've published a lot of content commercially self-published. I like to use Scrivener. It is available. It used to be Mac, I think. It's on Windows as well. But it's great for organizing your content, structuring, editing. And it will generate 
the electronic book EPUB format. It'll generate, it'll put it, your content into Word. It's got some nice templates. So Scrivener is a great authoring tool if you're looking for one. My other pick is a gem that I recently published and it's based on, so Bill Gates once famously said that content is king. And I think where we're at now these days, it's really all about the data. And uh, I'll be, I'll be, I won't, I'll be gender neutral. I'll just say data is royalty. Data is critically important. I think you need to be able to analyze data. Now, Ruby doesn't have all of the libraries that say a language, a language like Python does, but it is Ruby. So it's got a lot of great things going for it. There are data frames, libraries like Rover, a lot of other gems out there. So I, what I did was I created a, a lightweight gem widgets and data structures or Ruby wads. And it's a lightweight foundation. It's got some simple data structures and complementary visualization tools. It's actually used in the simple plotter application that I've talked about earlier on this show. And I'm looking to use it going forward to create some educational content as well. So uh, those are my two picks this week. Very cool. Uh, Jeremy, I'm going to let you go next. So I have a couple of picks this time. Uh, These are both related to some work I did recently uh, last month or two to set up my own email server. So my first pick is Vulture. That's V-U-L-T-R. So they're a cloud service provider. They offer low-priced virtual servers. I'm currently using one of their virtual servers. Costs $350 a month. I use it to receive email. And then sometimes I use it for connecting to machines behind firewalls using SSH forwarding. So one thing I like about most about Vulture is that they natively support OpenBSD, and it's just the operating system I use for all of my personal and production services, unlike what Luke did. So <laughs> the pick is SendGrid. So I use SendGrid to send email. So basically, I send email through SendGrid. I receive email on my own server. Uh, it actually doesn't cost me anything. SendGrid actually has a free plan. You can send up to 100 emails a day. I probably only average sending you know, a few emails a day. So their documentation is pretty easy to understand. Their admin website is pretty easy to use. So uh, I haven't had any problems. I, I like both of those very much. Nice. Luke, what are your picks? Uh, Jeremy's not going to pick so website, so I am. In preparation for reviewing this book, I what I usually do is I go back through people's back catalog and I, I read everything they put out on the internet as part of my methodology. Uh, this was a big mistake in Jeremy's case because Jeremy has 30, 31, 32 presentations, each roughly you know between 20 minutes and an hour long on his website. So that was quite a lot of work. That was quite a lot of work, but it did stand me in excellent stead for reading the book. Secondly, Brandon Weaver's doing a Let's Read on Polished Ruby, which is a kind of very serious, in-depth, kind of step-by-step um, tackling the nitty-gritty of the book. So I'll pick that. If you if you don't want serious review of a book and you want to read what I've written about it, you can. I'm going to pick my own blog, but where I uh, reviewed a book in a slightly irreverent way with uh, DHH means. And finally, one of the most interesting things which we didn't talk about in the book was the idea of freezing and specifically freezing core classes in Ruby, which is something which I never even thought of doing. Is freezing you free, you know freezing Ruby itself within Ruby, and of course Jeremy's written a gem for that. It's called a Ruby Refrigerator Gem, and it's very cool. Very cool. All right, I'm going to go last. I'm going to throw out a few things. I'm getting ready to launch the podcast bootcamp. You can find that at podcastbootcamp.io. We will help you launch a great sounding podcast in four weeks. Walk you through the whole process of essentially. Um, we we show you how to start. So people, they 
they usually want some kind of outcome. They want to help people. They want to get customers, something like that. And the way that you do that with a podcast is you help them envision you as part of their story. And so to start out, you tell your story and help them identify with it. And so that's what we're going to help you start out with. We'll, you know, we'll help you figure out what the content looks like. We'll help you figure out what to talk about, how to structure it all, and all the equipment and setup and technical and all that stuff too. And we'll have you up and running in four weeks. The other picks that I have, so I have listened to and finished a few books over the last few weeks. I finished Masters of Doom. I think I picked that last week. Really, really enjoyed that book. So if you're looking for a book about kind of game development journey, that's a terrific book. Another book that I read and, uh, or well, I listened to is How to Get Shit Done. I usually don't swear on these shows, but it's the name of the book. So by Sean Whalen. And he talks about kind of the four core areas of life that he tries to make progress in every day and how he does that. And it's really short. It's like an hour and a half long audiobook. It's real short. And then the last one that I listened to is the Enneagram. And if you haven't heard of it, it's, it's another kind of personality type thing. And it has nine personality types. And I found it really helpful for understanding kind of um, what motivates me. It, it talked about some things that I had just never heard anywhere else that really helped me identify how I think about things and what motivates me. And then I identified, you know, the different personalities for different members of my family. And it was like, oh, oh, that's that's what's going on over there, you know, in that noodle. So anyway, it's called The Road Back to You. It's by Ian Morgan Cron and Suzanne Stable. And so I'm going to pick all of those. And then I am back in love with my Traeger. So I'm going to pick it too. All right, Jeremy, if people want to connect with you, have questions, whatever, where do they do that? Uh, I mean, I'm on GitHub. I'm on uh, I'm on uh, Twitter. I'm it's Jeremy Evans, uh, number zero on Twitter. And it's just Jeremy Evans on GitHub. So uh, they can reach uh, me either of those ways. Um, most of my libraries, uh, the main way of interacting is with the Google group. So um, if you have questions about those, uh, doing Google groups probably best. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap up here. And thanks for coming again, Jeremy. Thank you very much for having me. We'll also have a link to where people can get the book. And until next time, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.